This is Recode Media with Peter Kafka. That is me. I'm part of the Vox Media Podcast Network here at Vox Media headquarters in New York City. It's a gray, gloomy, a cold day. Um, but I'm I'm warm on the inside because Eugene <laughs> Way is here, an, a Recode Media all-time favorite guest. Welcome back, Eugene. Thank you. Thanks for having me. I'm loading you up with, with pressure here because... <laughs> You, you were great last year. <laughs> I appreciate it. Um, I called you a thinkfluencer, and I think you said you'd not heard of that term. I hope I hope that's now on your LinkedIn. <laughs> I should add that. Uh, we had you on, and you talked about everything under the sun, mm-hmm. um, sort of riffing off some of these great blog posts you do. We'll do some of that today. But I, I just want to get people up to speed. Last summer, you came through. You, you have worked at Hulu and Amazon mm-hmm. and Facebook. Mm-hmm. And when you came through last summer, I said, what are you doing? He said, oh, nothing really. Mm-hmm. So now, mm-hmm. now what are you doing? Yeah, well, I'm still sort of doing nothing specific. You look pretty relaxed for not I, doing anything. I am relaxed. I am relaxed. Uh, it turns out that not doing anything specific is good for that. You've got uh, what looks like a very fancy, expensive, retro-y uh, <laughs> camera back there, so I assume that's the thing you're doing? <laughs> Everyone indulges their uh, photography hobby at, at one point. Uh, I've, you know, done a little bit of this and that. I've been advising various companies. I've been meeting with a lot of different folks and trying to figure out what's next. So you're not uh, in a rush? I'm not necessarily, like, under a specific, yeah, time we, deadline. And we talked about this before, but, I mean, to me, you are one, and there's a handful of people like you who have really sort of there are some people who knew who you were, mm-hmm. and then you wrote, and you wrote this really intelligent stuff, and just based on the sheer sort of intellectual firepower you brought to these these posts, which you can read for free on the internet, mm-hmm. you sort of created a whole new persona and I assume professional life for yourself. Uh, to some extent. I mean, certainly I think it didn't start out like that. I mean, I've had my website for almost 20 years now. No one really remains of the day. <laughs> yeah. If you Google Eugene Way, W-E-I, it'll come right up. No one really read it in the beginning. It was right. like three coworkers reading it. But this is all in like the last couple of years, right? You started yeah. writing this brainy stuff and people started sharing it on Twitter. And then I assume people, we talked about this, are coming to you and asking for advice or maybe asking you to consult. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like I think it turns out that, well, two things. Initially, it was writing on Amazon because I felt like whereas Apple had a lot of people writing about it all right. the time, not that many people wrote about Amazon. And also, you are a early Amazon employee. Mm-hmm. Um, there aren't a lot of Amazon employees who talk about what it was like to work at Amazon and things sure. they learned there. So that alone made you interested. Right. And then, you know, the tech world in general is kind of loves navel gazing. Yes. So if you, right, it's just like the same way media loves to talk about media, tech likes to talk about tech. So tech, how pieces. about a tech media podcast? That's that's the, <laughs> I hear that's the a good apex thing. You of navel gazing. You should get into that, Peter. <laughs> but uh, yeah, it turns out that the pieces of mine that travel the best are about tech because everybody's thinking about tech. Um, whether it's people at companies trying to figure out, you know, how to optimize their businesses, whether it's investors trying to figure out, you know, what the next big thing is, what the trends are, everyone is. And, and in so that. this idea of writing smart stuff on the internet, uh, Ben Thompson does it. He charges ten bucks a month. He has mm-hmm. a really big, yeah. really big business now yeah. doing that. Uh, there are people like Benedict Evans mm-hmm. who wrote smart things on Twitter and eventually became sort of a smart guy at Andreessen. Yeah. Do you think that's a sort of career for you? Like instead of having to, quote, get a real job, you could just be a smart guy on Twitter and on the internet? I suppose it could be. I don't know that that's um, what I want from it. Uh, I sort of enjoy it for what it is now, which is just 
I write when I'm interested in a topic. And what's nice now about it for me, actually, professionally, is just hearing directly from people now inside companies who may confirm or, you know, deny different things that I've speculated on. Right, and that's something that wasn't going to happen four or five years ago because mm-hmm. people weren't reading your stuff. They didn't right. know who you were, and now you've got someone at Snap or someone at mm-hmm. Apple saying, no, no, you got this all wrong. Yeah, yeah, and I think that's useful for me to refine my thinking on yeah. these companies. And what these I'm trying things, to do is yeah. get you to write professionally for, <laughs> for Recode. We'll figure out some way to do that. So let me, right. let's, let's, you wrote... So I, I, you were on last summer. I said, everyone go check out Eugene's blog. Mm-hmm. It's amazing. He does all this great stuff. And then if, if I'm correct, you stopped writing. <laughs> I did. You took like six months off. <laughs> I did. I did. I was traveling some. I also so just sorry really— if I, Sorry if I steered you to Eugene Way's <laughs> blog. It's just a big empty space. <laughs> I know. I'm sorry to let down your uh, listeners. But I actually just got a really bad carpal tunnel. That really? just For flared real? up again. Yeah. yeah. And— Partially because I didn't have a, a full-size keyboard. I was just using this, like, personal laptop, a little 13-inch MacBook yeah. Pro that I'd had. And turns out that, like, typing a lot in that, you know, sort of less than full-size keyboard caused me to just be unable to write for a while. And so I was just, you know, thinking about writing <laughs> and thinking wow. about ideas. And so when I finally was able to get back to writing, I felt like I just— put out something really long. Yeah, so you 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 did R&R, you you rehabilitated your your fingers mm-hmm. and then you wrote this massive how many words is this thing? I don't know. Some people have told me it's 20,000 words. It's so a lot of it's words. Yeah. yeah, it's a full hour to read, yeah. I think at least. You might want to take even a break, you might go for a walk <laughs> or something. And yeah. we're not going to spend a full hour on this, but we will spend a bunch of time. It's called Status as a Service. Um, I'm just going to read the, the the top of it and then we'll go from there. There's some, some intro. I'll get mm-hmm. rid of that. You say, let's begin with two principles. Principle one, people are status-seeking monkeys. Principle two, people seek out the most efficient path to maximizing social capital. And then there's 19,900 words <laughs> after that. But let's, let's start by explaining those two ideas. Okay, status-seeking monkeys, pretty much understand that, right? Yeah. You're saying this is a universal thing ever mm-hmm. since we figured out how to draw in caves or even prior to that, we mm-hmm. wanted to set ourselves apart. All right, got that. Right. Um, the most efficient path to maximizing social capital should probably get some unpacking from you here. Sure. So, you know, I think if you were thinking of us seeking status when we lived in small tribes, um, you know, there was one way to do it, which was sort of very locally contained. And the advent of the internet and these large social networks allowed us now a new way to maximize our status, which was much more unconstrained and unbounded. And it was really kind of a global status game. So whereas once you might compete for status with kids from your neighborhood or people who um, worked with you or things like that, now we are in these arenas where we're competing for status with everybody else in the world. And so what you're doing here is is setting up what's going to be a very long explanation of, of how some big internet companies, primarily Facebook and Twitter, but Snap, um, work within sort of this this framework you've set up. And this also has applications to games mm-hmm. and also is worth thinking about when you're thinking about companies that don't really have social components to them, why, mm-hmm. whether they could be added, whether they shouldn't be. You talk right. a lot about sort of uh, these two axes. Uh, one is utility, one is, what's the other one? Uh, there are three axes, status, status. Uh, 
utility and entertainment. Right, you took out entertainment for the for the purposes of this conversation. For the purposes, but we can we can talk about it a little bit there because a lot of people have asked about the difference between the three axes. Um, I focus this piece primarily on status because I think it was probably the least sort of studied or least analyzed axis when talking about social networks. And you know, conventional network effects theory is just like, look, you know the more users you add, if you believe in Metcalf's law, you know, the value of the network grows in proportion right. to people the square. Right, people get that idea, right? Yeah. Facebook is more useful with 2 billion people on it than mm -hmm. when there were 10, and you can actually argue that's not the case, but that's the generally accepted right. theory. Mm -hmm. uh, and then you also say that, you know, one of the reasons that people don't talk about social status here is they think it's sort of embarrassing or mm -hmm. puerile or beneath them, and then specifically you say, you know, the people who actually run these companies Mm -hmm. have more status than almost anyone else in the world. Mm -hmm. um, and so they either aren't thinking about it or it's hard for them to sort of think about how sure. their users are approaching this yeah. stuff. I mean, it's really hard. You know, when I was at Amazon, I remember, you know, producing this large analytics package with all these graphs and things. And our CFO would always say, you know, I never want to see a graph where you're munging all these, like mixing together all these different cohorts of people. You can imagine how difficult it is to run a social network like Facebook, for example, which has 2 billion users across all sort of ages and demographics, different cultures, different countries. You know, how do you even look at a dashboard and understand the dynamics of what's happening? So if you think about that as a series of many, many different localized status games, it's hard to even, you know, unpack that and understand what's happening. So, in, in, in Facebook and Twitter are not the first people to sort of use status to sort of power their business. Um, it does seem, though, that, like, there's this now conventional way that we think about networks like Facebook and Twitter and that they all involve some sort of display of your social prowess, right. uh, how many followers you have, how many likes you have. Um, same way we, we evaluate pieces of content, this thing has been retweeted this many times. Yeah. And, yeah. and in a lot of ways, we all sort of seem to take that for granted. Sure. There's now a counter argument that says, well, actually, maybe one of the ways we'd be better off is if we strip some of that stuff away. Right. But it's all seems, but you're saying, look, this is actually core. Like, this is not just an add-on. Mm -hmm. This is this this way of tracking and displaying who you are, how good your stuff is, how many how many people like you. This is this is core to the product. Yeah, it's, it's not it's, just that you're sharing your baby pictures with somebody. It's that right. you have this amount of status, and that you are actively thinking about trying to get more status and how to game it. And if mm -hmm. you're not, then you're probably not really using the service. Yeah, and I wouldn't I wouldn't go so far as to say that. Um, this is the only reason people use social networks mm -hmm. because certainly, you know, I use Twitter and Instagram and Facebook and all these networks for a variety of reasons, and so, and so do most people. Um, the second point, though, is that you know it's it's easy to forget that time before Twitter got kind of traction or before Facebook had news feed, mm -hmm. um, and to, it's easy also to forget all the social networks that didn't work that didn't have some of these elements built in. Uh, but if you think back to early Twitter, like I said in my piece, you know, it was really kind of boring in the beginning. If people were on— It literally you know, was people talking about what they had for lunch. Yeah, literally. I, uh, I always like to tell the fact that, you know, my first two tweets, spaced a year apart, were doing my taxes. Yeah. Because the prompt in the box said something like, what are you doing yeah, right now? Yeah, mine was like, I'm going Christmas shopping. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I don't know why, you know, that would have never been an interesting business— and to me, everything changed, for Twitter at least, when these third-party services started doing these global leaderboards to say, hey, these are the most popular tweets. 
And you looked at them and thought, oh, so that's how you get people to like your tweets. And wow, these tweets are really funny. And for Facebook, I thought that moment when they created newsfeed and now you could see everybody's posts put up against each other and you could see that this post had more likes than that post. Then, you know, that status-seeking part of human nature started to take over. And that just kicks in. Even if you don't think you're doing it, Mm -hmm. you're doing it is your argument. Yeah, it's, I mean, I, I think it's just built into human nature. And if you put people into that arena with that sort of incentive structure uh, on a global scale where the newsfeed is global, then uh, I think it's hard to suppress that part. And you say some stuff here that is, I, th- I think, I want to say, obvious sounds like I'm criticizing it. Mm-hmm. Um, I think uncontroversial. How about yeah. that? Where yeah. like the young people are going to be much more engaged in this stuff than older people in part because they have the uh, just capacity to do it. And also because if you're old, you got a mortgage, maybe, you got kids, maybe, you got a lot of other stuff um, that one occupies your time, but two, like, you know, is also your social capital, right? Mm-hmm. You, yeah. You, you have a car, and so that car reflects right. you in some capacity. Sure. Um, and if you're younger, you may not have any of those things. And yeah. so what you do have is a Snapchat account mm-hmm. or a Twitter account, and that really is your representation of you, and, and the status mm-hmm. there matters more to you for that reason. Sure. Yeah. Young people tend to have more free time than financial capital. Uh, Adults tend to have the reverse. And so, you know, if you can put the time in on earning status on these social networks, like if you want to maintain a YouTube channel or you want to post frequently on Instagram, young people have a ton of time to do that. Uh, The funny thing about being an influencer, a young influencer today, is if you actually follow any of them, you realize how hard a job it is. They're constantly streaming, constantly figuring out how content, uh, what content to put out to their fans. And And again, easy to dismiss because some of them are probably not rocket scientists. Mm -hmm. And, you know, a lot of them are literally doing it from their their bedroom. Yeah. Um, So they're not breaking bricks. But it's it's work and savvy and there's a combination of, of application and talent and serendipity and luck that all makes that work if it works for you. Sure. And there's certainly some of the resentment, I think, comes from not, you know, sort of remembering that time in your life when you were sort of mm-hmm. social capital poor. Another part of it is, look, you know, we, our status always sort of derives some value from its scarcity. And so if you're an adult, the types of social capital that you have, your job title, your, the size of your house, those things, uh, you want those to have more value than the type of social capital that some kids streaming from his bedroom will have. And so there's a a sort of an old money, new money dynamic that I think, uh, you know, for example, with media versus tech, the East Coast, West Coast war, Mm -hmm. there's always a sense where old money will want to label the new money as nouveau riche. So if you're old money in New York and you're looking at some hoodie-wearing billionaire in Silicon Valley, you're sort of like, okay, I find the bristling all comes from the West Coast. Like, that's a New York way of thinking about it. That's an old media way of thinking about it. Could it. Be. And they're probably right. But, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, but yeah, and especially when someone show, parachutes in and says, well, there's some problems in San Francisco or people yeah, act oddly, yeah. they, get, they get very bristly about that. Yeah. So I think, again, I think intuitively you would understand, all right, I'm looking sure. at Facebook, I look at Twitter, I can see that people are trying to mm-hmm. get likes. I can, on mm-hmm. Instagram, I can see where all that's going. You would also think that lots of people would be taking those mechanics and adding them on to other businesses. If you mm-hmm. have a, and it was a media podcast, so we'll talk about media. Sure. If you have a successful streaming video service, why not make it better by adding social components? Um, 
some people have tried it. It mm -hmm. generally hasn't worked. So why hasn't it worked and, and could it work for somebody else? Mm -hmm. Well, I use the analogy in my piece um, for social and status to sort of like a cryptocurrency where there's sort of some hurdle you have to um, go over to some get proof your, of work, yeah, right? proof of work. Some proof of work for you to earn the uh, social capital on the network. So for example, for Instagram, the proof of work is take a really interesting photo that people will like. Uh, on Twitter, it's to compose something witty under 280 characters that people will want to share. Uh, so for, I think, a lot of media businesses and things like that, you know, where you're just passively consuming content, there isn't really some meaningful sort of proof of work where you'd earn status that actually has any value for somebody. You know, like Netflix, for example. If you were to try to graft some sort of social network onto it, I don't know that a conventional like, hey, let's uh, let's create a feed where people are liking and sharing right. things makes sense. I mean, sense, in, in, you know? Netflix tried a thing with Facebook where there was this frictionless sharing. Mm -hmm. and I think in, in Facebook's case specifically, they said, or in in, uh, in Netflix's case specifically, they said people don't want to share what they're watching necessarily. Right. They might be embarrassed for various reasons about yeah. what they're watching. But people have tried this sort of gamification of stuff like that and, and leaving yeah. aside like not wanting to let people know that you're watching Triple Frontier. Sure. It's a fine movie. <laughs> uh, it's not a fine movie. But it, uh, it's okay. It's entertaining. Yeah, it was in, okay. In a certain way. But people have tried various, uh, um, I've seen a bunch of this stuff where mm -hmm. you're going to accumulate points for telling friends about this and, and those things all seem like they could work and none of them work. Yeah, it's hard. It, it turns out it's actually hard to create a new form of status that is both meaningful to you, but also meaningful enough to enough other people. Because status, look, is always derived from the entire network, right? I can't just say that I did something and get status from it if no one else thinks that Someone else that has, thing to, is has worthwhile. to validate and say this is actually is pretty good. Right, right. So you have to do something where a lot of people together will say, look, this proof of work is meaningfully hard, right? Like not everybody can do this. And second, where people are like, you know, I actually respect that they did that. You know, you saying you had binge watched some series on Netflix doesn't feel necessarily like a high status thing. It might even be seen as low status that yep. you were spending all this time watching a show. So it's not it's not so easy. And this is why you see... It seems, yeah. it, I can see that from the outside, though, why it would seem like, all right, Peter announcing that he finished Triple Frontier isn't really inherently more interesting than one of the Kardashians talking about what, what they bought yeah. that day, right? It's really the yeah. same thing. But of course, they're very different. Yes, yes. But it's hard to sort of see where that line is, right. other than Lots of people pay attention to the Kardashians, and sure. even though I've said repeatedly now on this podcast that I've watched Double Frontier, no one has asked me what I thought about the movie. <laughs> well, we could talk about it afterwards. Yeah. I've watched it too, so I'd, I'd love to hear your thoughts, Peter. Uh, I, I do think that um, one of the tricky things with media in general is that, um, as you said with the Kardashian example— Look, people do pay the Kardashians like a million dollars to post something on Instagram because enough people care right. what they wear. And again, you can understand products. like mechanically, yeah. all right, that they are celebrities. Yep. This is the same thing as them being on a TV show or on a screen of some sort. So sure. we get the part of why that's a business, the yeah. sort of explaining why that particular thing is interesting other than they're attractive young women mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. is sort of baffling to, I think, some people. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, the other thing about media, I think that's tricky to do social games with, especially for video or television or film, is that 
I think that category, um, more so than music and books, is a category where, uh, you know that term narcissism of, uh, narcissism of small differences? I always feel like even if you get a bunch of film lovers in the room, they will find a way to disagree about some movie mm-hmm. in, in the most sort of like really specific yeah, way. Yeah. And, you know, we tend to only watch movie and TV shows once. It's not like music where you're listening to tracks hundreds of times. So You can't really identify, like you can't really, a lot of people like Breaking Bad, but if you wore a Breaking Bad t-shirt, it's not really, you're not really identifying with something in the same way you do if it's a pop star. Yeah, it is. Look, it is uh, true that uh, once, uh, I think in an age where there was less overall media, you know, you might be able to wear a Breaking Bad t-shirt or say that you were a fan of Star Wars or something. And that is like a social network that yeah, you joined. Yeah, we discussed that last time. And uh, that, that's a great thing. But we're also in an age now where I think the abundance of media, essentially the infinite amount of media content, has made it harder and harder um, to do that. So, Speaking of infinity, we've talked for some time. We're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back with Eugene Way. And we're back with Eugene Way. Good to be back. You have a great smile, Eugene. I like <laughs> having you. you in this studio. Yeah. Um, so you've been ruminating about this idea, which again, we're in some ways, I think anyone who's following you goes, yeah, yeah, we understand there's social status sure, on Twitter. Sure. That's the whole point of it, or on Instagram. What was the sort of main sort of surprising idea that, that occurred to you as you were assembling this thing? What was the thing you wanted to get off your chest? Uh, I think that... The biggest thing for me was just, I think our models, our mental models of social networks will be more complete if we just factor in status as one more element. Not the only element, but one more element in why certain networks work and why certain networks don't. And the broader reason I think this is important is that I feel like we're at the end of this first generation of large social networks, like the ones that are big that we talk about now have been big for a number of years. And they, they're in Facebook's case, they're still growing amazingly, yep. and Twitter really isn't growing, Snapchat. I mean, they're yep. kind of fixed, right? Yeah, they're fixed. I mean, Instagram is still growing a little. You have some companies in China that may be experiencing some growth. But they've been around long enough where um, I also think with sort of this current reckoning that we're having mm-hmm. with social media, we are we are at this point where we're taking a look back on this sort of first era of social networks and saying, well, what did we learn? Where did we, where were we right? Where did we go wrong? And how can we fix or change these networks moving forward to take advantage of what we learned? And I think status is a part of understanding what happened in this so first So regardless era. of what, whether we have a new crop of Facebooks and Twitters at some point, or maybe we're just kind of stuck with these guys. And, right. I mean, right. how do you feel about that, by the way? Because for, for a long time, I just assumed, and I don't who followed this stuff, assumed that we used to have this service, and now we have that service, and mm-hmm. there's just an ebb and flow to these things, and someone will come along and replace Facebook. And now it, right. it, it seems pretty calcified. Um, and one theory is, well, that's because all this, all the prior stuff didn't exist before phones, right? And so right. once you have phones and it's truly global, whoever gets there first is sort of wins sure. and sure. won't be won't be displaced. Do you, so do you think there will eventually be a new crop of Facebook's Twitter snaps? I don't know for certain. I certainly think it's getting harder to displace the incumbents. And the whole status piece, I think, gives you sort of two directions to go on this. One is that because status is derives from the network and derives from scarcity, you could argue that if the existing social networks 
lock in too much status for people who are already on the networks and who've been using them for a long time, that a new generation of young people will come along and say, look, I don't want to be on this network because the status has all been sort of drained out of the system. And it's so hard for me to break through, right? Yeah. There's people here who are sort of basically you know, squatting, right? Because yeah. they they showed up 10 years ago and mm -hmm. maybe they weren't even particularly good. There's a lot of this that exists in a lot of these social networks or YouTube, yeah. right? Where if you, if you showed up on 2006 and right. uploaded videos with any kind of frequency, yeah. decent chance you're going to become a YouTube star. Yeah. Now there's no way you could do that. Right. Or you, it'd be very, very hard for you right. to break through. Right, right. And that's where the analogy to crypto comes in, in that it gets harder to mine Bitcoin over time because they have to enforce the scarcity for it to have value. And so if, if the social networks aren't good about managing this, then you could see why a new social network might pop up. You might show, find a new club where you and your cool friends or just you and your friends can do stuff. Right. A huge part of the dynamic, I think, of the, the um, exodus from Facebook to Snapchat a lot in the beginning was because, you know, there was a set of young people who were like, oh, gosh, my parents are on a Facebook now and they could see what I post to newsfeed and yeah. that completely changes the dynamic of what I can post there. And so we need to find our own space. Now, the utility axis, um, I put in there because I think many... So again, we're talking about the idea that, that you can measure these things based on how much social status they have to sort of disperse or how, what you can do with there and, and how much... And then also how much utility they provide. Right, exactly. And the nice thing about utility which might be, for example, you know, like in China, you can use WeChat to pay for things at a restaurant, um, or you can use a social network to call a car or something right. like and, that. And right? you do do all those things. You do, it's not do like, all those things. You can do a bunch of the stuff on Facebook, but for the most part, you don't. Right. And so I think more of the large social networks are going to start looking at utility because status is inherently volatile, and you don't want to be managing a network built only on status when there's a, a sort of like um, implosion of the value of that status. So if the current generation of networks starts to do a good job on adding utility, that's much harder for a startup to displace, right? If you're a new startup and you're trying to build some company, it's not going to be that easy for you to build a global payments network. Right. You had yeah. to decide they're saying, you know, a bunch of my friends over the last few months have stopped using Facebook and they, they seem to be okay. Mm -hmm. And if you're in China, you really can't stop using WeChat. It's because it's not just social. It's how you're going to pay for things, how you're going to get around. Right, right. And if you open WeChat, for example, in China, the page that you open to is not a news feed-like thing. Like, it's actually... Really funny if you open WeChat and try to find that news feed thing that they have. It's a couple you taps work away. For it. Yeah, yeah. Like you open WeChat and it's there for you to message people. It's a messaging utility first and foremost, and then it does like fifty other things for you in your daily life. And so, you know, whether it's with Facebook cryptocurrency or Instagram adding more convenient shopping, or it's Snapchat adding a lot of features on top of its messaging platform. You know, just like disruption theory, you know, all the big incumbents were like, oh, wait a minute, we don't want to be disrupted. We can head that off. And so you think yeah. that is, in, in Facebook's case, in particular, like intentional, we want to add utility. They've tried over the years to add utility. It hasn't really worked. You think it's because they don't know how to do it or their users just reject it or they just haven't found the right use case? Uh, I, I think that— there's me They've done messaging, right? right? And then they went right. out and bought— another messenger server, but, but Facebook sure. Messenger is a thing. They have that. Yeah, that, it, that actually worked well, right? That's a case where they wanted to make Messenger more useful. They broke it out into a separate app. 
you know, I don't know how many people use Messenger. It's a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's a, that's a great case where they succeeded. Um, for some things like payments and things like that, I don't know that they've continuously tried to crack that nut, but I think they should. And it's probably a category that they're going to spend more time on. In the same way that Instagram, which is for young people actually a very powerful status game, you know, if they add more things like shopping into it as a utility, I think that's just more durable in the long run. And you think that's a practical way for them to go and it won't scare off people who are using Instagram to to do whatever they're doing on Instagram right now? Yeah, I, I think ultimately we all have, um, we all go through this sort of like hedonic treadmill thing where if you play status games for a long time, you can get tired of them or you can get sick of them. And it's a hedonic <laughs> treadmill? <laughs> yeah, I, I just, you know, I, uh, I use that as gee. a term, but like I think... I got to Google it. Yeah, yeah, like yeah. hedonism. <laughs> yeah, there's there's something about like playing a status game for a long time that that can it's like eating too much sugar. You yeah, know? yeah okay. you feel just like sick from doing it, and you know, like people. I've accumulated all my likes, and now I feel bloated. Yeah, you know, like I, uh, you know, once it might have been exciting to get fifty likes on a tweet, and then you're like, oh, actually, I need to get a hundred, yeah. and and that that can be tiring, and you, and you hear this from people who are on social media a lot, and you know they feel like they're just exhausted and they need to take a break from it. And so, yeah. What do you think of Mark Zuckerberg saying, I'm going to move the focus of Facebook from public consumption and public display. We'll still have all that. You can still do it. But we think our users want to have private conversations with encryption. And and there's obviously political and regulatory reasons he's talking about doing that. But he's also saying, this is what I think our users want to do. I'm not trying to create a thing they don't want. That would seem to, to, I mean, it's hard to imagine how you accumulate social status through one-on-one chats. Yeah. Um, I think that's an an acknowledgement of, you know, look, one of the central ideas of this first generation of social networks was this idea of something that's like the newsfeed, a public monolithic thing where everybody's in there, you know, like what Jack calls the town square of Twitter. And many people were doing that because it turns out that's a really efficient way to create a mass engagement game. But we're now also seeing kind of some of the sickening side effects of this sort of mass public display of performative status seeking. And so I think Zuck is sort of skating towards where the puck is already going. I've seen a lot of people um, in my network even stop posting publicly right. and but that's, move. I mean, some, yeah. of that, some of that is a specific distaste for Facebook, and some of that specific distaste is because they think it created Trump or elected Trump. Mm-hmm. Right? But, but the whole premise of you writing this thing is people want, people are status-seeking monkeys. So if that's the case, but we're moving towards private communication, how do you square those two ideas? Well, I, I think there will always be some balance, right? Like, I don't think... Uh, Instagram or Facebook or these uh, services will take away Mm -hmm. the sort of like that public monolithic feed where people do sort of uh, still continually try to rack up likes and things like that. However, I think there is a recognition that, look, we're losing some people who are taking a lot of their uh, more honest selves into private conversations. And ultimately, I think this is... um, This is all about sort of squaring the complexity of people's identities with these services. Um, I say status, and people have a negative connotation to status seeking. Because they're thinking about cars and jewelry. Yeah, exactly. But if you flip it, another way to put it is that people really want a sense of self-worth 
and identity from social networks. And I think, look, part of our identities requires there to be some level of privacy where we can try out ideas and personalities and things without the glare of the public spotlight on them. And I think, look, people are adjusting their behavior because they've realized sort of, oh my gosh, like I shared too much or, you know, it's this not- This thing I wrote last year is still up there <laughs> and now I have a new job and people don't think that's funny or now I can't host the Oscars. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You look at athletes who are getting like dinged for some terrible things they wrote as teenagers. Yeah. And, you know, look, people will go back and weaponize anything that you wrote in the past. And so I think this sort of adaptation, like Facebook moving more towards this public um, encryption and public messaging, is it's just reflective of the fact that we probably do need a suite of ways to uh, express who we are as humans, and that this that most networks are too sort of uh, constricting in how they force us to be one way. Like a good example is, I don't write as much on my blog now because the ones that go viral are about tech. Because you know people are paying attention. Yeah, and so... I feel like I have to only write about tech. Whereas if you read my blog in the early days, I would write about food or movies. You had a really music. good post about garbage collection in, was <laughs> yeah. it Shanghai? In Taiwan, Taiwan. in Taipei. Yeah. yeah. And you do feel constrained where, you know, on Twitter, now that I have more followers, I also feel if I don't tweet enough about tech, people might unfollow me. And, and, and so, you know, how do we create the next generation of networks where everything that you are as a person um, can be expressed and the network appro appropriately funnels that content to the people who care about it. We've kind of, right, we use following people as an approximation of following interests. But the fact is, you know, like if John Gruber is, most people follow him for Apple coverage, he still likes to talk about the Yankees, yeah. right? And, you know, if he started just tweeting about the Yankees full-time. A lot of people probably unfollow him. What's great is Ben Thompson yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, has a whole feed just for NBA. Exactly. So if you really want to know what Ben Thompson thinks about the NBA and the Milwaukee Bucks, you can go track yeah, that down. Yeah, no Tuck Ben. If you uh, no Tech Ben is uh, his Twitter account for so discussing great. the Bucks and, and the uh, Brewers and all the Milwaukee teams. And the fact that he has to do that is sort of an indictment of, you know, Twitter not allowing people to follow interests more generally and be fed stuff that's more tailored to them as, you know, readers or viewers. One last question on, on, on this essay, which you should all be reading. There is a conversation, at least, I, I think it mostly comes up around Twitter, but some other folks as well, saying maybe we should take down some of the status stuff. Mm -hmm. Maybe we should not tell you how many retweets this thing got. Mm -hmm. uh, or maybe we, we shouldn't display your follower count. We should, we should remove some of the status-seeking. Mm -hmm. um, elements to, to our network for various reasons. What do you think of that idea? And do you think people are going to follow through on it? Uh, I think it's tricky because, you know, I start my piece with the idea that we are status-seeking monkeys. Mm -hmm. And I've, you know, just told you that I think our sense of self-worth requires some forms of feedback. And right? so even if you stop wearing, like if the trend is we're not going to wear IZOD or polo <laughs> shirts because that's gauche and we're going to not have labels, there's you still find ways to sort of right. indicate the status of the shirt you're wearing. You know how in futuristic science fiction movies, it always seems like everybody wears the same outfit. You mm -hmm. know, it's like some white robe or, or something yeah. bizarre like that. And I, I just don't think a world like that is going to happen where everybody's like, look, I'm no longer going to signal anything about my personality or status. We're all going to wear the same outfit. You know, it's the whole school uniform idea, right? right. Like they want 
kids to just wear the same uniform because they don't want people competing. Right, and then they just find the one thing that they can modify <laughs> and then the focus goes on shoes or whatever yeah, it is. Yeah, we, we all like crave some level of uh, distinctiveness, right? Yeah. We want to stand out in some ways. And, and so I think that's fine. Like I love just the variety of people I meet online, their personality, the, the various things that they really geek out over. I love all of that. Can we preserve some of that while removing the uh, more egregious, sort of like harmful forms of status, you know, signaling. I think it is possible, and but it requires us just acknowledging that that is a part of human nature, and that's a part of why they flock to certain things on on social networks. So, uh, in a very Eugene way, uh, uh, reserve skepticism about this <laughs> this premise. All right, you yeah. guys are going to go Google hedonic treadmill. <laughs> We're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back. Back with Eugene Way. We've all done our Googling. Did you invent the word hedonic treadmill? No, no. No, I okay. got that from somewhere. Um, you learn no. a lot reading your blogs, and then you learn even more talking to you. It's great. <laughs> it's a free education. You should charge for this somehow, Eugene. I'm telling you. I, will, I won't even take a cut. We're going to build a business around it. You're building a business for, for me, which is <laughs> great, so thank you. Yeah. Um, just as an aside, you had a, you had a line there, um, just reminding me. Um, you were pointing out that this, the people who have made... Uh, become famous or use social media to build these big businesses, Kardashians, the Logan Pauls, et cetera, um, all of their attempts primarily to then go out and create their own standalone social thing mm-hmm. have not worked. They've been able to go to other platforms, but and obviously they get paid a lot to do one-off things, but the idea of them creating their own hub, I mean, we had talked mm-hmm. to the folks who were doing the Whale Rock guys, the Kardashians. Right, right. Yeah. Um, why doesn't that work? Why can't people port their audience from Facebook or Instagram or Twitter to the thing they're doing? I mean, they do yeah. do it, right? But sure. Why, so why does it not work as an ongoing thing? Well, look, execution is always one of the risks. Um, okay, so let's stipulate that it's hard. Yeah, yeah, it's hard. But the second thing is, if you look at most sort of celeb standalone efforts, the apps that they create or whatnot, those actually are not um, very good at being status games themselves. What they are is mostly a way for someone famous to just distribute content directly to a set of fans. These apps are usually set up as having a news feed or something, but none of the fans of that person are actually interacting with each other. There's no proof of work for them to earn status over other users. They're just there to get more stuff, which is fine. Which is fine. But limited, I guess is your point, right? That's why it doesn't work? Yeah, that's part of it. The second thing is that if you look at the life cycle of high-status influencers, it's interesting because we've had enough time now to see some influencers come and go. Um, you know, in, in many ways, the Kardashians and Jenners are, are unicorns in that they've had a much longer run and mm-hmm. a much more successful run at this. But many young, young influencers come and then they kind of fizzle out. Over time, and we're just using influencer to just generic for per person who's famous on the internet. In some yeah, capacity. exactly. Someone who got famous on the internet, yeah. and then at some point, people accuse them of being famous for being famous. Yeah. But it's actually a very fragile thing. You know, one of the funny things, if you talk to, for example, young um, teen girl influencers in the in the fashion world, you end up with this weird sort of. Um, you're almost like a hostage to your fans and the narrative that you put out there about yourself. And, you know, if you were to break up with your boyfriend and, you know, start dating someone new, your fans might revolt and and lose interest in you. And 
you know, I think it'll take another, you know, 10 years or so for us to study the life cycle of a couple waves of influence to understand what exactly is happening there and who has staying power longer than just, you know, a couple years of their By the way, as an aside, because we're, we're not going to get into this, but you spend a lot of time talking about Musical.ly and TikTok here, and that's one of those things where I think a lot of folks maybe had heard briefly of Musical.ly, and maybe they've got some sense that TikTok's a thing, um, and you do a very good job of explaining mm-hmm. what it is, why it works, why certain people are using it, primarily young girls, I think it's sort of over-indexes. Yeah. So, Go read the 20,000 words. We'll, we'll, I'll save you on this conversation. Um, I do want to ask you uh, a couple Amazon things because I do like mining your, your brain for Amazon Insight. Okay. Amazon, I think, has sort of replaced Apple for the sort of consumer internet company that people are most interested in and or at mm-hmm. least optimistic about. I mean, Facebook generates a lot of headlines. People use it a lot. Sure. Um, Amazon is still, I think, almost entirely um, – Regulators aside for the moment, um, people feel really good about it. Mm. And I'm, I'm curious sort of how you view the company from the outside, specifically about two different things. One was this, uh, the, their decision to move HQ2 to New York or partially move <laughs> HQ2 to New York. And then after a couple weeks of really not much, just a couple, maybe, maybe a couple months of getting some negative uh, pushback, deciding they weren't going to do it. Um, in my mind, I think of Jeff Bezos and Amazon as sort of like, earnestly analytical, very sober, very serious, and they might take risks that don't work, like the fire foam, but those are calculated mm-hmm. risks, and then they sort of dispassionately walk away from it when they're done. This seemed really abrupt. Am I right in thinking of this as an un-Amazonian move? Uh, to some extent, you know, look, I think all companies maybe have some level of blind spot when it comes to how they are regarded by the public. And I say that not just for Amazon, but I've been inside several companies now. And I think it's hard to describe to people on the outside how much of a bubble it can be going to work with your coworkers every day, not necessarily seeking out all the you know negative stories that mm-hmm. are written about you. Like who who likes reading? Right. Or when you hear stories. them, you ignore them, and those are the yeah, haters. Yeah. Yeah. Like I'm sure, for example, you know, people at Facebook have, you know, and I would agree. Like some of the stories written about them are unfair at times, and so it's easy internally to build up a narrative where you're like, look, they're just out to get us, right? The East Coast West Coast yeah. thing I talked about before. New York Times become, is trying to win yeah, a Pulitzer, which is true. Yeah, can become a narrative in your head, and that makes it just so easy if you frame things that way, to ignore all of that and to not see some of those things. And so when when I'm not at a company, like I haven't been for a bit, it's just a, a completely different way in which you regard right. all of so that. So that explains yeah. them like making the mistake and not understanding why this would be a problem. And, you know, in their defense, the mayor of New York City and the governor of New York yeah. State said, we're doing this and this is going to be great. So you'd kind of yeah. naturally assume that right. was going to work. Yeah. Um, but then the decision after a couple of weeks to go, no, no, we're out of here. That was the thing that really surprised me. I just assumed they would, again, because I have a perception mm-hmm. of Amazon, like we thought this through, we're going to stick it out. We made we don't make these decisions lightly. Sure. Um, but it seemed like pretty capricious. Yeah. Look, I, I don't know that it was capricious or not, but it sure seemed to be trending in the direction where it was going to be a knockdown, drag out sort of right. battle, and it was going to drag the brand through the mud. And 
you know, is it worth it? Ultimately, one of Amazon's strengths as a company is that they could even contemplate an HQ2. You know, they're, you know, they have like seven, I don't know how many employees, 700,000, 800,000, some astonishing number. They're in how many lines of business? It's like, it's staggering because when I started, it was a domestic yeah. bookseller online. And, you know, just scaling to that degree actually requires you to be able to run kind of as a distributed company with a lot of things. And so the fact is, they maybe really wanted to be in New York. Um, their company already runs in a distributed way. So ultimately, I don't think it hurt them that much to say, you know what, let's just go somewhere else. Not, yeah, no, it, yeah. It, it, I get the logic of them yeah. saying, we don't actually need to do this. It's just yeah. quite a bit of whiplash from them spending a year plus right. with the, the pageant and... Yeah, well, and <laughs> I think part of their strengths, look, I, I think there there probably were some mistakes made along the line in this whole process, but one of the strengths of the company is look like once you realize it's not worth it, not, you know, being captured by sunk costs, just write it off and just say, let's just move on. Got it. And yeah, be done. As you know, Jeff Bezos had an affair and then got divorced and then wrote a post on Medium accusing the National Enquirer of trying to extort him. And it's an extraordinary story. And I don't want to ask you about any of the details there because you don't know about them. Mm -hmm. But I am curious about how you think people on Amazon think about it because the way this has been, when it's been discussed in the press, it's almost entirely that this is Jeff Bezos' personal life and and whether we're purient or whether it's interesting, it's divorced from Amazon. And I haven't seen any analyst notes or really any serious business coverage about what does it mean when the CEO of this company is engaged in this very high profile, very unusual fight that involves the National Enquirer and the President of the United States and maybe Saudi Arabia. And, and, and again, seems very un but also just in terms of the company, you would think at some point it goes from this is your personal life to actually know this is this does affect the way the company works. Do you think that discussion is happening internally or do you think they just have accepted the idea that this is like investing in, uh, what's what's the name of his rocket company? Blue Origin? Blue Origin. Is this is just like Blue Origin. This is the thing he does. He fights with Donald Trump on Medium. I haven't been at Amazon for so long. Correct. That I actually have no idea internally. Uh, I do think that ultimately one of Jeff's strengths is his ability to just be sort of like laser focused on the business and what matters and just always compartmentalizing all that's not important and focusing on what so you, is important. You, you believe that, so that is essentially sort of the narrative explicitly and implicitly that they're putting out. You go, I, I buy that. I do think that he can do one thing over on the medium post and another thing where he's trying to figure out toothbrush sales. Yeah, I, I think that's one of his like best strengths as a leader. And look, ultimately, I, I think every one of the big tech companies, whether it's Amazon or Facebook or all this, there's a lot of just media noise around them in generally. And I think there's no doubt that if you talk to people who work at all, all these companies, some of it affects them, mm -hmm. you know, like, especially if you're, you know, when I was more junior as an employee, I would read negative stories about Amazon in the press. I was just starting out in my career. Like my mom would mail me press clippings. They're like, oh my God, this story said that Amazon's going to go bankrupt. Yeah, yeah like where do you, where, what's going to happen Well, that was you? the cover of Barron's, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Amazon.bomb, Amazon.toast. You know, you're constantly reading these things. And the more I've, you know, sort of gone on in my career, the more I've understood that, look, the, the press is doing their job right? They are going to cover things and come up with like really 
interesting contrarian angles and stuff to like, you know, raise a bunch of noise around things. And that ultimately, you know, if you if you just keep paying attention to it, you're just going to get whiplash from yeah. emotionally trying to deal with it and to mostly filter all of that out. All right. Because, Del- delicately yeah. answered. Good job, <laughs> Eugene. Uh, and then last old company I wanted to ask you about, uh, you were at Hulu for a bunch of years. Sure. Uh, not responding to my, my questions, even though it was your job to do that. <laughs> I guess your job was to ignore me. So exactly. you did a good job. I was doing my job. Uh, and, and we referenced this the last time you talked, but now we're, we're really in it, right? So you've got Netflix at 140 million subscribers, and this is the year where all the big media companies that have sort of enabled Netflix sure. uh, are now saying, hey, we actually should be doing what you're doing. So mm-hmm. uh, a couple days from when we're talking, Disney is going to sort of roll out its plans for Disney Plus, I guess. Time Warner slash AT&T is going to, near the end of the year, kind of explain what they're doing, maybe. Next year is NBC. Uh, And then there's this weird Apple thing that we've spent a bunch of time talking about on this podcast. Um, What is the thing that you learned at Hulu that would be useful for these new entrants into streaming and SVOD that would be useful for them to know? Um, I don't know that there's one particular thing that I learned there, except I would say, well, there are two things I think that matter. One is that um, the one thing that no single company controls is the competitive context into which they are thrust. And what I mean by that is the amount of content, the amount of shows and films that are out there has grown by magnitudes of order right. at this point. And you can't control that because how much stuff other people make is sort of independent of how much stuff you make to a large degree. Although if you're Netflix, you're making a lot of it yourself, right? <laughs> yeah, mean, exactly. Making, they are spending billions of dollars right. there controlling that. And so I just think some of the playbooks that media companies have were created in an age when the competition was much less. Uh-huh. And that really affects actually the diffusion of your shows and stuff and how it takes with with a culture in which, you know, so this is a good place to bring in the entertainment axis of my three axes of uh-huh. social networks. I think the biggest change in my lifetime, and the reason I separated out entertainment and utility, is that when I was a kid and I went to the movie theater to see a movie, I did not see that as competitive with uh, listening to the radio on the way to the movie theater. And I didn't see that as competitive with going home and watching Friends on TV. And back then we didn't have phones so the contexts were sort of separate from each other. None right. of those competed with each other. You did this thing other. and you did that thing. Right. And the biggest change in our lifetime is entertainment is now fungible. So at any moment in time, you can pick up your phone and you can read the New York Times. You can watch Netflix. You can watch YouTube. You can go to Instagram. You can go to Twitter. And so in the consumer's mind now, all forms of entertainment trade off against each other. And so you might say that, hey, this podcast or listening to some music on Spotify isn't the same as playing Fortnite. But, you know, when Netflix says that they compete with Fortnite, actually all forms of entertainment compete with all forms of entertainment right. now. And so... And there's two versions of the that, that Netflix competing with Fortnite. One yeah. is they used to say Angry Birds, right? Mm-hmm. People could spend their time on the Angry Birds app and now they can do that. And I think what some people are also saying, in part because Netflix is saying it is... Mm-hmm. Fortnite is an interactive game where you interact mm-hmm. with the interactive. Mm-hmm. And we're increasingly interested in that idea. Not social sure. interaction, but we're it's we're gonna engage with you. You're gonna choose your own adventure, like a branching mm-hmm. narrative, they right, call it. Right. Um and I think that's where they're sort of saying, Hey, this is the direction we're going. Mm-hmm. They, don't, they don't tend to do a lot of head fakes on Netflix. We'll see. <laughs> yeah. 
But, but I'm sorry, I digress because your point is these things are all fungible. They're and all competing. the consumer has a limited, has a five, yeah. only 24 hours. You can right. multitask, you can do a bunch of stuff. Yeah. But yeah. that's that's the, yeah. that's what they're going so after. That's, that's one point. And then my second point is just that Netflix, look, the media companies may want to roll back the clock and everything, but the fact is that Netflix got the scale advantage. Right. They got the high ground. And it's very rare in history to see any company successfully take on a company with a scale advantage by actually just copying what they do. So I get why AT&T might come in and say, look, HBO should be making a lot more stuff, kind of like Netflix, right? Justify mm -hmm. this flat rate subscription. But the fact is, the whole definition of scale advantage is that Netflix has 100 and whatever, 50 million subscribers, and you don't. So if they want to spend $10 billion on content, and you say, I'm going to spend $10 billion on content, they're spreading that cost across. Right, the ten billion is much more, more expensive people. for you. It's much more expensive for you, and is it possible that you could spend ten billion more efficiently than Netflix? I mean, maybe, but probably that's a skill yeah. that's not really that doesn't really exist. And so, I think the whole thing, you know, the idea that it's not TV, it's HBO. That HBO thought that they would always make superior content was a lot of that was just the product of HBO was the only place to go in town back in, to in a day. To get that kind of programming. To get that type of stuff. And now you see, right, like the showrunners of Game of Thrones, what are they going to go do next? I think they're going to work on Star Wars stuff or something like that. Yeah, they were. They, they said they were going to do an HBO thing. Who knows? And then, yeah. Um, yeah. And oh, I was going to avoid Apple, but I'm just curious. Your sure. So, so Apple is going at this, and at least as far as we can tell, they're using their money and their scale. Yeah, they have a lot of both. Yeah, but they're not trying to supersize anything. <laughs> they, yeah. you know, as much money as they're spending—a billion, two billion dollars a year—it's yeah. a fairly modest amount of programming, right? Yeah. A couple shows a month. They sure. don't have a library. They seem to be running counter to sort of what everyone else is doing, which is saying we have a lot of stuff that we either own because we're Disney or AT and T, or we've paid for because we're Netflix, yeah. and we're going to throw it at you. And for ten to twenty bucks a month, you're going to have sure. that. Um, and Apple seems to have some other take on it. Does that make sense to you? That they wouldn't go that way? I actually think the world would be way more interesting if Apple, you know, with their huge amount of cash on hand, really did try to take on Netflix. Yeah. A little more head-on, right? Because they're the one company, I think, that has enough free cash to actually make that a credible strategy. And the way that you would envision that working is that, let's say Netflix spends $20 billion on content next year. Well, Apple could do that. And if you think that a lot of Netflix content actually decays in sort of relevance really quickly, then all it takes for Apple is to spend $20 billion a few years in a row to actually sort of like catch up and have a catalog mm -hmm. that's equally interesting. Right, because Netflix will like, say, Marco Polo that we spent yeah. $100 million on seven years ago, yeah. which in a traditional company would have been a write-off. I said, yeah. no, no, this still has value. Yeah. yeah. And your argument probably doesn't have any value. Yeah, like, well, part of the big change in the world is that because there's so much content now, I actually do think the decay curve on content is much faster. Like, you know, like two weeks after Stranger Things season two came out, like I felt like nobody was talking about it Right, anymore. and again, Netflix yeah. will say, yeah, but that's just Twitter. Mm -hmm. And it literally doesn't yeah. matter to us whether someone watches Stranger Things for yeah. the first time in four years as long as they watch it. Right. It's great. Right. Uh, I don't know. Only they have the metrics right. on whether that decay curve, you know, like, 
I think the key metric to watch for Netflix moving forward is what, how many years can they amortize their content over? The longer that number is, the better things are for them and the harder it is even if Apple spends $20 billion to catch up. But as it is, the current Apple offering, as I saw it from their keynote, looks a little bit like kind of like a me too, we have a service, we have a lot of phones and things in people's hands. And so if we tack this on, it's probably going to do pretty well, kind of like Apple Music did pretty mm-hmm. well, right? Just through the distribution. It's not going to be a service predicated on being revolutionary yeah. and dominating the video but, streaming industry. But but Apple Music was the same thing as Spotify. Like, really, you know, very yeah. little difference there. And they had the exact yeah. same catalog of stuff. Right. And so it's just a thing on your phone where this yeah. is a different... Yeah, You will have to decide whether you like the Jennifer Aniston show enough to pay yeah. for it or at least watch sure. it. Sure. And... Uh, as we all know, that's a very capital-intensive, tricky game. I think you're better off thinking that no one company is better than any other company in making these things. And in fact, that it's just kind of like VC, where it's just a portfolio of stuff. And you're like, look, if we make enough stuff, a few things will appeal to enough yep. people that enough people will subscribe. And that's, that's just classic bundling strategy. It sounds so dull when you say it that way. <laughs> I find it all very exciting. But I well, but I, yeah, that's why uh, that's why you bring the Spielbergs and the Oprahs on stage. Exactly, and, not Eugene. <laughs> we'll get you there eventually. But you you make great podcast content, Eugene. So thank, thank you, you for coming. I appreciate it. I appreciate we'll have you back in a year. Awesome. If you want to come, oh, you're always I'm welcome. All, I'm always happy to come on. Thanks to you guys for listening. Thanks to Joel Robbie, who edits this show. Thanks to Golda Arthur and Eric Johnson, who produce it. Special thanks to anyone who leaves us a rating on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or anywhere else you listen to this show. Uh, this is Recode Media. I will see you next week. Thanks. Thanks.